Chapter Twelve of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. Chapter Twelve. When I had decided that my last chance for securing the little stiletto spike was very uncertain, I at once busied myself with plans which were designed to bring about my death by drowning. There was in the ward a large bathtub. Access to it could be had at any time, except from the hour of nine, when the patients were locked in their rooms for the night, until the following morning. How to reach it during the night was the problem which confronted me. The attendant in charge was supposed to see that each patient was in his room before his door was locked. As it rarely happened that the patients were not in their rooms at the appointed time, the attendants naturally grew careless, and often locked a door without looking in. Good night, a salutation usually devoid of sentiment, might or might not elicit a response, and the absence of a response would not tend to arouse suspicion, especially in a case like mine, for I would sometimes say good night, but more often not. My simple and easy plan was to hide behind a piece of furniture in the corridor and there remain until the attendant had locked the doors of the rooms and gone to bed. I had even advanced so far in my plan as to select a convenient nook within twenty feet of my own room. Should the attendant, when about to lock the door, discover my absence, I should, of course, immediately reveal my hiding place by leaving it, and it would have been an easy matter to convince him that I had done the thing as a test of his own vigilance. On the other hand, if I escaped discovery, I should then have nine hours at my disposal with little fear of interruption. True, the night watch passed through the ward once every hour, but death by drowning requires a time no longer than necessary to boil an egg. I had even calculated how long it would take to fill the tub with water. To make sure of a fatal result, I had secreted a piece of wire which I intended so to use that my head, once under water, could by no possibility be raised above the surface in the inevitable death struggle. I have said that I did not desire death, nor did I. Had the supposed detectives been able to convince me that they would keep their word, I would willingly have signed an agreement stipulating on my side that I must live the rest of my life in confinement, and on theirs that I should never undergo a trial for crime. Fortunately, during these dismal preparations, I had not lost interest in other schemes which probably saved my life. In these the fellow-patient who had won my confidence played the role of my own private detective. That he and I could defeat the combined forces arrayed against me hardly seemed probable, but the seeming impossibility of doing so only lent zest to the undertaking. My friend, who of course did not realize that he was engaged in combat with the Secret Service, was allowed to go where he pleased within the limits of the city where the hospital was situated. Accordingly, I determined to enlist his services. It was during July that, at my suggestion, he tried to procure copies of certain New Haven newspapers of the date of my attempted suicide and the several dates immediately following. My purpose was to learn what motive had been ascribed to my suicidal act. I felt sure that the papers would contain at least hints as to the nature of the criminal charges against me, but my purpose I did not disclose to my friend. In due time he reported that no copies for the given dates were to be had. 
so that quest proved fruitless, and I attributed the failure to the superior strategy of the enemy. Meanwhile, my friend had not stopped trying to convince me that my apparent relatives were not spurious. So one day I said to him, If my relatives still live in New Haven, their addresses must be in the latest New Haven directory. Here is a list containing the names and former addresses of my father, brother, and uncle. These were their addresses in 1900. Tomorrow, when you go out, please see whether they appear in the New Haven directory for 1902. These persons who present themselves to me as relatives pretend to live at these addresses. If they speak the truth, the 1902 directory will corroborate them. I shall then have hope that a letter sent to any one of these addresses will reach relatives, and surely some attention will be paid to it. The next day, my own good detective went to a local publishing house where directories of important cities throughout the country could be consulted. Shortly after he went upon this errand, my conservator appeared. He found me walking about the lawn. At his suggestion, we sat down. Bold in the assurance that I could kill myself before the crisis came, I talked with him freely, replying to many of his questions and asking several. My conservator, who did not know that I doubted his identity, commented with manifest pleasure on my new-found readiness to talk. He would have been less pleased, however, had he been able to read my mind. Shortly after my conservator's departure, my fellow patient returned and informed me that the latest New Haven directory contained the names and addresses I had given him. This information, though it did not prove that my morning caller was no detective, did convince me that my real brother still lived where he did when I left New Haven two years earlier. Now that my delusions were growing weaker, my returning reason enabled me to construct the ingenious scheme which, I believe, saved my life. For had I not largely regained my reason when I did, I am inclined to believe that my distraught mind would have destroyed itself and me before it could have been restored by the slow process of returning health. A few hours after my own private detective had given me the information I so much desired, I wrote the first letter I had written in twenty-six months. As letters go, it is in a class by itself. I dared not ask for ink, so I wrote with a lead pencil. Another fellow patient in whom I had confidence, at my request, addressed the envelope, but he was not in the secret of its contents. This was an added precaution, for I thought the Secret Service men might have found out that I had a detective of my own and would confiscate any letter addressed by him or me. The next morning my detective mailed the letter. That letter I still have, and I treasure it as any innocent man condemned to death would treasure a pardon. It should convince the reader that sometimes a mentally disordered person, even one suffering from many delusions, can think and write clearly. An exact copy of this, the most important letter I ever expect to be called upon to write, is here presented. August twenty ninth, 1902. Dear George, On last Wednesday morning a person who claimed to be George M. Beers of New Haven, Connecticut, clerk in the director's office of the Sheffield Scientific School and a brother of mine, called to see me. Perhaps what he said was true, but after the events of the last two years I find myself inclined to doubt the truth of everything that is told to me. 
He said that he would come and see me again sometime next week, and I am sending you this letter in order that you may bring it with you as a passport, provided you are the one who was here on Wednesday. If you did not call as stated, please say nothing about this letter to anyone, and when your double arrives, I'll tell him what I think of him. Would send other messages, but while things seem as they do at present, it is impossible. Have had someone else address envelope for fear letter might be held up on the way. Yours, Clifford W.B. Though I felt reasonably confident that this message would reach my brother, I was by no means certain. I was sure, however, that should he receive it, under no circumstances would he turn it over to anyone hostile to myself. When I wrote the words, Dear George, my feeling was much like that of a child who sends a letter to Santa Claus after his childish faith has been shaken. Like the skeptical child, I felt there was nothing to lose but everything to gain. Yours fully expressed such affection for relatives as I was then capable of, for the belief that I had disgraced, possibly destroyed, my family, prompted me to forbear to use the family name in the signature. The thought that I might soon get in touch with my old world did not excite me. I had not much faith anyway that I was to re-establish former relations with it, and what little faith I had was all but destroyed on the morning of August 30th, 1902, when a short message, written on a slip of paper, reached me by the hand of an attendant. It informed me that my conservator would call that afternoon. I thought it a lie. I felt that any brother of mine would have taken the pains to send a letter in reply to the first I had written him in over two years. The thought that there had not been time for him to do so, and that this message must have arrived by telephone, did not then occur to me. What I believed was that my own letter had been confiscated. I asked one of the doctors to swear on his or her honor that it really was my own brother who was coming to see me. This he did, but abnormal suspicion robbed all men in my sight of whatever honor they may have had, and I was not fully reassured. In the afternoon, as usual, the patients were taken out of doors, I among them. I wandered about the lawn and cast frequent and expectant glances toward the gate, through which I believed my anticipated visitor would soon pass. In less than an hour he appeared. I first caught sight of him about three hundred feet away, and impelled more by curiosity than hope, I advanced to meet him. I wonder what the lie will be this time, was the gist of my thought. The person approaching me was indeed the counterpart of my brother as I remembered him. Yet he was no more my brother than he had been at any time during the preceding two years. He was still a detective. Such he was when I shook his hand. As soon as that ceremony was over, he drew forth a leather pocketbook. I instantly recognized it as one I myself had carried for several years prior to the time I was taken ill in 1900. It was from this that he took my recent letter. "'Here's my passport,' he said. "'It's a good thing you brought it,' I replied, as I glanced at it and again shook his hand, this time the hand of my own brother. "'Don't you want to read it?' he asked. "'There is no need of that. I am convinced.' After my long journey of exploration in the jungle of a tangled imagination, 
a journey which finally ended in my finding the person for whom I had long searched, my behavior differed very little from that of a great explorer who, full of doubt after a long and perilous trip through real jungles, found the man he sought and, grasping his hand, greeted him with the simple and historic words, Dr. Livingston, I presume? The very instant I caught sight of my letter in the hands of my brother, all was changed. The thousands of false impressions recorded during the seven hundred and ninety-eight days of my depression seemed at once to correct themselves. Untruth became truth. A large part of what was once my old world was again mine. To me, at last my mind seemed to have found itself, for the gigantic web of false beliefs, in which it had been all but hopelessly enmeshed, I now immediately recognized as a snare of delusions. That the Gordian knot of mental torture should be cut and swept away by the mere glance of a willing eye is like a miracle. Not a few patients, however, suffering from certain forms of mental disorder, regain a high degree of insight into their mental condition in what might be termed a flash of divine enlightenment. Though insight regained seemingly in an instant is a most encouraging symptom, power to reason normally on all subjects cannot, of course, be so promptly recovered. My new power to reason correctly on some subjects simply marked the transition from depression, one phase of my disorder, to elation, another phase of it. Medically speaking, I was as mentally disordered as before, yet I was happy. My memory during depression may be likened to a photographic film, 798 days long. Each impression seems to have been made in a negative way, and then, in a fraction of a second, miraculously developed and made positive. Of hundreds of impressions made during that depressed period, I had not before been conscious, but from the moment my mind, if not my full reason, found itself, they stood out vividly. Not only so, but other impressions registered during earlier years became clearer. Since that August 30th, which I regarded as my second birthday, my first was on the 30th of another month, my mind has exhibited qualities which, prior to that time, were so latent as to be scarcely distinguishable. As a result, I find myself able to do desirable things I never before dreamed of doing, the writing of this book is one of them. Yet had I failed to convince myself on August 30th, when my brother came to see me, that he was no spy, I am almost sure that I should have compassed my own destruction within the following ten days, for the next month, I believed, was the fatal one of opening courts. You will recall that it was death by drowning that impended. I liken my salvation itself to a prolonged process of drowning. Thousands of minutes of the seven hundred and ninety-eight days, and there were over one million of them, during which I had been borne down by intolerably burdensome delusions, were, I imagine, much like the last minutes of consciousness experienced by persons who drown. Many who have narrowly escaped the fate can testify to the vividness with which good and bad impressions of their entire life rush through their confused minds and hold them in a grip of terror until a kind unconsciousness envelops them. Such had been many of my moments. 
but the only unconsciousness which had deadened my sensibilities during these two despondent years was that of sleep itself though i slept fairly well most of the time mine was seldom a dreamless sleep many of my dreams were if anything harder to bear than my delusions of the day for what little reason i had was absolutely suspended in sleep almost every night my brain was at battledore and shuttlecock with weird thoughts and if not all my dreams were terrifying this fact seemed to be only because of perverted and perverse reason in order that its possessor might not lose the capacity for suffering knew how to keep hope alive with visions which supplied the contrast necessary for keen appreciation no man can be born again but i believe i came as near it as ever a man did to leave behind what was in reality a hell and immediately have this good green earth revealed in more glory than most men ever see it was one of the compensating privileges which make me feel that my suffering was worth while i have already described the peculiar sensation which assailed me when in june nineteen hundred i lost my reason at that time my brain felt as though pricked by a million needles at white heat on this august thirtieth nineteen o two shortly after largely regaining my reason i had another most distinct sensation in the brain it started under my brow and gradually spread until the entire surface was affected the throes of a dying reason had been torture the sensations felt as my dead reason was reborn were delightful it seemed as though the refreshing breath of some kind goddess of wisdom were being gently blown against the surface of my brain it was a sensation not unlike that produced by a menthol pencil rubbed ever so gently over a fevered brow so delicate so crisp and exhilarating was it that words fail me in my attempt to describe it few if any experiences can be more delightful if the exaltation produced by some drugs is anything like it i can easily understand how and why certain pernicious habits enslave those who contract them for me however this experience was liberation not enslavement end of chapter twelve